I am aware of the fact <clears throat> that I think kickoff time is 12 o'clock. And uh, I was thinking about the fact that if I went too long, some people would be praying that I might kick off about 12 o'clock. So I'll try to behave myself. Uh, actually, the memo did not get to Tommy because it was uh, written yesterday that I decided to, to alter my message uh, this morning in the light of what's taken place in Haiti, and yet it's not off course from the text that we were to have studied this morning in Ruth chapter 2, for that text is about God's provision for those who are in need. And uh, it probably is not accidental, but more providential that we should be in Ruth chapter 2 at this point when we see the great needs that are there in Haiti, a massive release, a relief effort is underway, as you know. There will be much surge taking place in the first few weeks, but there will be a great deal of ministry that is required uh, as time goes on. There are a, a number of websites, one of which I have put on the back of your uh, notes for this morning, that give you some guidance and some cautions about organizations that you might give to, but it seems to me that even within the realm of of Christian organizations, there probably are so many of them that we will need some help in making decisions as to which organization we might choose to give through. And so I I hope that one of the things this message will do is give you sort of a, a set of guides to help you. As I look at those organizations that are out there, I guess I see a variety of them. There there are the scam organizations, usually those are the Johnny-come-latelys that all of a sudden appear, and uh, phone calls and and whatever uh, come online for you. Uh, We want to avoid those. There are the legitimate ministries, but some of those ministries are what I would call high-maintenance. In other words, there is a fair bit of overhead that is taken off of your gift, And you may want to keep that into consideration. And that would include Christian and non-Christian groups, by the way. Then there are those groups that are truly Christian, but there are also those who would share more closely with us our convictions and our principles, and I would suspect that those are the groups that you would be most interested in. And so I'm just going to talk about the whole matter of Uh, giving and caring for those in need from the scripture and uh, see if we can have a kind of frame of reference from which we can proceed uh, from here. If you're looking at a theological frame of reference, I think we have to start with the sovereignty of God. Whatever we do, we dare not uh, represent the crisis that has taken place as something that somehow caught God off guard or that God was not somehow in control of and allowed for his purposes. I'm thinking of that text in Amos chapter 3 and verse 6 that reads like this in the ESV. Is is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Now, those may not be comforting words to some, but they are true words. And what it says is nothing happens in this world, including disaster, 
that is somehow outside of the sovereign control of God. I was thinking of that text that's a more pleasant one in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 that speaks of God who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. And to be more specific, God is sovereign even in the realm of earthquakes. And we don't want to see those as some kind of uh, event that takes place apart from him, but they are within his sovereign control as well. I'm thinking in terms of 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 15, and there it is an earthquake that God uses to give Jonathan and his uh, armor bearer a victory that then will signal the great victory that Israel has. As I understand that earthquake, you have a, a, a very large number of Philistines, and they are sort of in battle array with fixed bayonets, and this earthquake kind of moves this way, as some earthquakes do, and literally these guys are stabbing each other in the back. And, and remember, the only Jonathan and his father had swords at that point in time, the text tells us. So God used an earthquake to give them victory. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, God speaks to Elijah by means, uh, or I should say, as he speaks to him through a still small voice, he sets the stage by having an earthquake as well as some other uh, phenomena that are uh, very striking. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 6, it says, Judgment will come from the Lord who commands armies, accompanied by thunder, earthquake, and a loud noise, by a strong gale, a windstorm, and a consuming flame of fire. What that says is that these things, which we may call natural uh, activities, some people would call them an act of God, but it's interesting that when people say that, they mean exactly the opposite. Uh, of what they say. They mean something that just happened somehow. They really are acts of God. And in that context, they are acts of God in judgment. Remember in Matthew 28, it was a, it was an earthquake that the angel employed to roll the stone away from the tomb of our Lord to reveal that he was missing. It was in Acts chapter 16, an earthquake that released Paul and Silas. Not, I might add, unlike the way they cleared the prisons out in Port-au-Prince, and, and now all of the inmates are out running around to a people's great dismay. And uh, you remember in Numbers chapter 16 with Dathan and, and Abiram, when they rebelled against the Lord, the Lord caused the ground to literally open up and swallow them. All of that is simply to say God is in control. He is in control of all things that take place, including earthquakes. And so that, for the Christian, is a great source of comfort. You remember when Job is going through his sufferings, he does not understand all of what God is doing. He does not understand the way in which Satan is being instructed by God in that and he begins to complain to God and, as it were, to have his hands on his hips and to say to God, you've got a lot of explaining to do. And that's when God, in chapter 38, starts to talk to him and, and basically says, you better stop and think about what you're saying. And he asks him all of these things that pertain to his absolute, infinite control over all of his universe. And when he gets through expressing his sovereignty, if I may paraphrase Job, he says, well, shut my mouth. It was the sovereignty of God 
which gave Job the confidence that all of his suffering was somehow purposeful. And that's because he saw not only the power of God, but the goodness of God uh, at work. I was thinking, too, about that text in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John, remember, had healed the man on the way to the uh, to the temple at the hour of prayer in chapter 3. And now the opposition bears down upon them, and they come back and they meet the church, and and they explain to the church what's happened. And when the church hears this, here's what they pray. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices to God with one mind and said, Master of all, you who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything that is in them, who said by the Holy Spirit through your servant David, our forefather, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot foolish things? The kings of the earth stood together and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Christ. For indeed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together in this city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do as much as your power and your plan had decided beforehand would happen. What was their comfort and their consolation? Their comfort was they served a God who was in control of everything. He was in control of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He was in control of all of the earthly powers so that his purposes were being achieved. And they could rest in that. The sovereignty of God is our comfort. And maybe a little twist on that would be what we might call the providence of God. And that is the sovereignty of God that is working mysteriously in in our world in a way that we don't expect so that good things come out of that. Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Not for everybody, but for those who are God's people. Everything in our life is being orchestrated for our good and for God's glory. When you come to the book of Ruth, you see that. Now, you see it in fairly short terms, time-wise. But you see Naomi, in effect, saying what Jacob had said uh, years before. All these things are against me. In fact, she was even saying, God is against me. What she came to see is that God was carefully crafting history in a way that would not only bring about the birth of the Messiah, but would bring about her good. God is providentially at work, though she did not see it. Now, because God's providential work is mysterious and we don't see it, we have to be careful about assessing judgment and blame. One of the evangelical well-knowns this past week made a statement I suspect even he regrets having made about what took place in Haiti. We would do well not to make judgments and assessments where it is beyond our capacity to know exactly what God is doing. I was thinking about that text in John chapter 1, where when the disciples see this man who has been born blind, they turn to Jesus and they say, Who sinned, this man or his parents? That was the realm of their grasp of how you account for such tragedy. And the reality is they're wrong. Because this had been done, as Jesus made clear to them, 
for the glory of God. And probably the primary text here would be the one in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. You probably know it, but I think it's worth reading to you again. Now, there were some present on that occasion who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. He answered them and said, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 who were killed when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Jesus is saying something very important here, and I think we need to be careful about self-righteous, smug condemnation. And we say to ourselves, well, it's because of who those people are. It's because of what those people did that this judgment has come. I'm not denying that that may be true. I think the thing we have to be aware of is our sin is no more respectable in God's sight than theirs. And so when we start talking about the sin of other people and the judgment they deserve, Jesus starts talking to us about our sin and the judgment that deserves. And that, I think, does pretty well to silence a lot of us. Now, last theological perspective. It seems to me that you have to look at this, this great earthquake and the tsunami and, and, and all of the things that have happened lately as an encouraging thing in this regard. Prophecy makes it clear. Natural disasters and wars are those things that are going to come in abundance and signal that the coming of our Lord is near. Is that not right? And so while we do not delight in those things, we do see that that's a part of what God is bringing together, and I think it has to sensitize us to the fact that his coming may be soon. Now let's talk about charity in the in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to linger long here, but I want to go back to one of the texts in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. Also in chapter 23, verse 22, there's a parallel text. And then in Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 through 22, all of these say essentially the same thing. But they're the underpinnings for what takes place in Ruth chapter 2. And that is where it says in Leviticus 19, 9, When you gather in your harvest of your land, you must not completely harvest the corner of your field, and you must not gather up the gleanings of your harvest. You must not pick your vineyard bare, and you must not gather up the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You must leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. A number of years ago, I was in Camarillo, uh, California, when Todd Ellison was there ministering in a church, and I happened to go with him to visit one of the men in the church who had a lemon and avocado farm. And uh, it was during one of those times, obviously not one of them now, you could tell that I'm on, I was on a diet, and, and I love avocados. I love avocados. And this guy was an entomologist. That means he studied bugs. And I guess if I were growing things, I'd want to know about bugs too. So he has this knife and he whips this thing out and he picks an avocado and he opens it up and looks and he says, want it? Did I want it? Of course I wanted it, but I had to turn it down. So he goes, he just flips it off. And, and, 
And, and then I looked at his trees and, and I saw that there were, there were some that had avocados underneath that were still good. And there were some that they had picked, but there were still avocados. And I asked him about that and he said, well, I leave those. I leave those for, for people in need. And, and it was just interesting to watch a farmer who still practiced the same principles in the Old Testament. What I see with Boaz, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna save some of this for next week, I don't wanna steal all my own thunder, but what I see with Boaz is a man who not only complied with the law, but who in his love for the law and what it was seeking to accomplish went above and beyond it. Now, if the law says that you have to leave the corners of your field unharvested, that's that's a little bit of a, um, a, a, a a farmer's choice, is it not? In other words, if I were a first-class tightwad farmer, my corner would be about one cubic foot or square foot of, of crop. It'd be a corner. When I look at, at at the field of Boaz, and I and I say to myself, here's here's Ruth walking along the road. And she's asking probably God to guide her to the right field. Which field would you go to? The field that had a 10-foot corner or a field that had a 1-foot corner? I think that's part of the reason that she went there. Is She saw that here was a man who took the law seriously and delighted in doing it. But what we see is in, in this command is if you were to accidentally drop Part of what you're harvesting in the middle of the field, you don't go back and pick it up. What does Boaz say? He says, you're not dropping enough. See to it that you drop more. Now, there's a man who loves God's law. And what a wonderful provision it is. And I think I'll talk more about how that relates to charity. Other than to say this about Ruth. If we see the generosity of Boaz, we see the diligence and the hard labor of Ruth. Do we not? When the, when the workers in the field are asked by Boaz about this woman, they say to him, she arrived, since she arrived, she has been working hard from this morning until now, except for sitting in the resting hut for a short time. She was a hard worker. And notice, she was a hard worker not primarily for her benefit, but for Naomi's. I do have some questions about why Naomi's back in the rocking chair in Bethlehem while her daughter-in-law's working her tail off out in the fields. That doesn't set well with me. But even if she were just there to be with her and, and accompany her, I do not understand that. But the point is, Ruth is diligent in meeting the needs of her mother-in-law, and she was willing to work for it. She didn't expect people to bake the bread and deliver it to her door and holler if it was not fresh enough or if there wasn't enough butter to go with it. She worked hard. I got this from Greg Watson, and I can't wait to tell you. He gave me this statement. The best place to pray for potatoes is at the end of a hoe. Don't you love that? The best place to pray for potatoes is at the end of a hoe. That is, expect God to provide, but expect God to provide through those who work. And, of course, the New Testament follows that up. So that's the charity in the Old Testament. Let's talk about charity in the New. And in particular, let's focus on Jesus for a minute. 
Jesus was touched by human need. If there's anything that's clear about our Lord Jesus, it is that when he saw human need, he was touched by compassion. I looked that word up in the concordance, and you'd find over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus was filled with compassion, and it caused him to respond in a gracious way. But I was thinking in particular of that text where the two blind men are sitting by the road as as they're leaving Jericho, and they, they call out, and they say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus stopped, and he called them, and he said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Matthew chapter 20. Over and over we see Jesus was touched by human need. One of the things that I've observed in the third world where poverty is so rampant is that there is a way in which we begin to close ourselves off and we don't look. We don't look and we don't see poverty and need. We just close it out. That is not being touched by compassion. And that is something that all of us need to be careful about. We may look at Haiti and we may see, as it were, almost an overload of of need. But that is no excuse for turning off our hearts toward what God wants us to do. It was a ministry to those who were in need was a significant part of our Lord's messianic ministry. It was one of those things that signaled that this was the Messiah. Luke chapter 4 that was referred to this morning where Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth and he stands and he reads from, from, uh, from, uh, actually I think he sits as he's expounding on that, but Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2, it talks about him who comes to give sight to the blind and proclaim release to the captives. And Jesus says, today in your midst, that scripture's fulfilled. That was what tagged him as Messiah. When John the Baptist in Matthew 11 is beginning to wonder, he's in his prison cell, Jesus hasn't thrown the rascals out from Rome, and John the Baptist is beginning to wonder, and he sends the message to Jesus through his his followers, and he says, "Uh, are we following the right guy here? And Jesus says, take a look at what I'm doing. I have compassion on the poor, and I minister to the needy. That's what qualifies him, in part, as being the Messiah. Okay, Jesus has compassion. He ministered freely to those who were in need, regardless of how they responded. Now, I think that's significant. I'm thinking particularly of the ten lepers. But here Jesus heals the ten lepers and only one returns. And the reality is when you look, for example, at John chapter 5, and here's the man by the pool of Bethsaida, and Jesus uh, says to him to, to get up and walk and whatever, and then, you know, uh, he, Jesus comes to him later and says, uh, don't keep on sinning, something worse may happen. He turns him in to the, to the mattress police, and, and, and Jesus now gets called on the carpet for, for breaking the Sabbath. So Jesus ministered to people knowing that not all of those people would come to faith, knowing that not even all of those people would be grateful for what he had done and show thanks to him. I think we have to be very careful. And I want to tell you, if we were in Haiti right now and we were handing out bags of grain, they may be knocking us down. They may be knocking us out, some of them. 
to, to take that grain. And there are no doubt thugs who would try to rob the whole uh, uh, truckload of grain and go sell it on the black market. There's all kinds of things that are going to happen. You can't let, I think, the, the people's bad responses to, to our charity keep us from opening our hearts to people in need. And that, that can easily take place, I fear. Jesus used his ministry of mercy as a gateway to the gospel. So that when you see the man who is lowered down through the, the ceiling, uh, when Jesus sees him in his pitiable condition, he says to him first, your sins are forgiven. Because that was really the issue. And, of course, the, the, the scribes and Pharisees standing around, they were thinking through their little theological grid, and they said, well, nobody but God can say that. That's the point, of course. But Jesus used that ministry that he was doing to cause people to think about him in terms of who he was, not just in terms of his, uh, his helps ministry. You see that in John chapter 9, where the man who was born blind didn't see who Jesus was because Jesus sent him off to wash his eyes out somewhere else. And Jesus then appears to him and speaks to him and ultimately says to him, I am the Messiah. Because it was the spiritual that mattered most. In fact, you have to say this. For Jesus, it was the spiritual dimension of his ministry that was dominant. Classic text, Mark chapter 1. Jesus has healed Peter's mother-in-law. And as a result of that, you remember at the evening time, it doesn't take long for the word to get out. And now you have people gathering outside from every which place, and Jesus begins to heal. But then Jesus goes off to pray, and his disciples come and they say, Jesus, there's this whole crowd. Come on, come on, these people are waiting for you to heal them. And Jesus said, no, we've got to be moving on because I came to preach the gospel. It would have been very easy for Jesus to have a healing ministry full time. But his healing ministry was subservient to his proclamation of the gospel. He never lost sight of what his ministry was about. I've had some involvement in organizations, and I've, and I've observed others from afar. And I have to tell you, it is very easy for the tail to start wagging the dog and for social ministry to become the dominant theme and for the gospel to get lost. It seems to me that it's very hard to proclaim Christ to people and ignore their needs. But when you focus on their needs their physical needs as the ultimate priority and lose sight of their spiritual needs, that is a very dangerous place to be. Jesus said the gospel is the priority. Now let's think about the church and human tragedy. When you come to the uh, book of Acts, one of the things you see is at the very outset, one of the things that characterized the Christian church was their concern for people in need. Acts chapter 2, people begin to sell their possessions and to take the proceeds of what they have sold and lay those at the, at the uh, apostles' feet. 
Acts chapter 4, you see that, and Barnabas is one of those. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira got caught up in the emotion of it all, but their heart wasn't really there, and you know what happened to them. Acts chapter 6, you have the issue of the care of widows that comes up. And the uh, the apostles and the elders felt that was uh, a critical thing to deal with, but it was not to take all of their time or energy. They were committed to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so they select uh, capable, qualified men. It's interesting, too, that they prepared in advance. That is, people were laying the proceeds at the uh, apostles' feet before the needs were there. They had, so to speak, money in the bank for that ministry. When you come to Acts chapter 11 and Agabus announces that there's going to be trouble throughout all of Judea uh, and, and so on, then they, remember the, the saints uh, in, in, uh, in Antioch uh, hear about that and they begin to lay aside uh, resources in order to meet the need which is still future. One of the saddest things is to see human need and know you have no resources to meet those because you've spent it elsewhere. Probably, in my case at least, not wisely so. It's a beautiful thing to have money in the bank that you've earmarked or at least have available for that kind of ministry. I want to tell you, if you have money in the bank and you're, you're going to be looking for needs, if you don't have it, you're going to be looking away. That's just the way we are. And God had his church preparing in advance for the meeting of needs. Paul's own practice was obviously exemplary. He makes it clear that while as an apostle and a minister of the gospel, he should be supported. He also says that for the sake of the gospel, he forsook that in order that the gospel may be advanced uh, even to a greater degree. He says to the Thessalonians and he says to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, I didn't covet other people's silver or gold. Instead, I worked hard so that I might give to them. Isn't that interesting? To think about a preacher supporting his congregation as opposed to a congregation supporting their preacher. It's pretty rare stuff. When you look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, it says that priority in our giving for charitable purposes, ought to be fellow believers. Not exclusively, but it ought to be a priority. So then when you have an opportunity, Paul writes, let us do good to all people and especially to those who belong to the family of faith. So I would take it that while we are to give to men, irregardless of their faith, we are to give priority to those who are in the household of the faith. Notice, too, that when money was sent, money was sent by the church to the church. It was the apostles who had the funds that were sent their way, and then they would send it off. But it was a church-to-church kind of sending of resources, which I think has a very, very important role. And added to that was the fact that there was a very, very meticulous care given to the way in which that money was handled. Remember, Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He, he talks about Titus and this brother 
who are going to be coming along to uh, take this collection. And he said it in verse 20 of uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We did this as a precaution so that no one should blame us in regard to this generous gift that we are administering. For we are concerned about what is right, not only before the Lord, but before men. We should be scrupulous in the way we handle money. And, and I want to tell you, in all the years that I've been a part of this church, I've never seen a corner cut on that, on that point. I have never seen a corner cut. In fact, I have seen us go out of our way to go above and beyond the call of the law or even other people's practice to make sure that everybody understands that these things are handled in a way that makes it reliable and trustworthy and brings honor to God and not shame before the world. One of the things I see, too, is that charity was linked to evangelism, not only with our Lord Jesus, but with the church. When you look in Acts chapter 2, when you look in Acts chapter 4, what you see is that there is this mixture of the church, it's gathering together, it's, it's uh, devoting itself to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, but it's also a church that is sharing its goods. And so you see that the church continues to grow. By the way, even in Acts chapter 5, when funds are, are not handled as they should have been with Ananias and Sapphira, that had an impact on the church and the world. Because what it said was, some people, the unbelievers, had a great respect for the church, but they didn't go because they understood the holiness of God. And they were, they were apprehensive about being in the presence of a God who took the way people handled money very seriously. And you can look at the graves of Ananias and Sapphira for validation on that. Okay, I'm winding up to the end. Oops, kickoff time. All right, I'll be quick. Here's some observations. It's interesting to me that, that by and large, when in the ministry of our Lord and even in the ministry of the church, no money is handed to people. Jesus never said to a poor man, here's a buck <laughs> or a denarius or whatever it was. Uh, Jesus made lame men walk and blind men to see. And I want to tell you, they got off the welfare rolls pronto because of that. But he did not give them money. Peter and John said, silver and gold have we none, but such that we have, we give to you. Now, it is true that the church sent money to other churches. But what I'm suggesting to you is that when those churches ministered, they didn't minister by handing out checks or handing out dollars. They handed out food, and they gave people the things they needed, clothing or housing or whatever. But it's a very, it, it's, it's a very destructive thing to become a financier. The missionaries that I have seen overseas uh, who have learned their lessons early have said, I never give money to people because that immediately transforms the ministry. You become a banker and not an ambassador for Jesus Christ. It changes the tone of ministry. And those who do give money, do it in a blind sort of way so that nobody understands the donor as that recipient gets that. But generally speaking, it's best not to give money. Now, let's have a little caveat here. 
when you listen to, to uh, uh, President Bush, and I think it was he who said in the interview the other day, don't give goods, give money. I would agree with him in that regard because it's, it's pretty difficult and awkward to shift loaves of bread from here to somewhere else. But what's going to happen is that money is going to go closer to Haiti where goods will be bought. But you don't hand out money. It's just generally not happen. It should not happen. And I don't think it happened much in the church. And, uh, and I don't think it's generally wise to do that. So here's my, here's my points. I wasn't trying to be uh, too uh, cute in, in uh, picking my uh, alliterations. But I would say this. Number one, let me talk about the recession for a minute. One of the things we see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is the Macedonians were poor, and yet they begged for the privilege to give. And Paul commends them and uses them as an example. Folks, we are not poor. We are not poor. And, and the recession may be upon us, and I know that, 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 that some people have been hit by that harder than others, but I don't know anybody that's out sleeping under a tarp or wondering where a glass of water is going to come from. There's none of that here. And I think all I'm saying to us is every one of us, we ought to be saying, I may not have much, but I need to do something. I just really feel that's an important thing for God's people to, to square off with. Second Corinthians 8 and 9 in particular. Two, reliability. If there's anything that's, that's uh, laid out for us in Scripture, it's that those to whom, and, and in particular those through whom, we are going to send our resources ought to be people who are meticulous in the way they handle that money and even the amount that they may take off for administrative costs. We need to look at that really carefully. Three is relationship. One of the things that I've realized is when you look at Jesus and you look at the ministry of the apostles, it is not long distance. When you look at what takes place in Acts 2 and Acts 4, those things were happening in the context of Jerusalem as, as, the, as the help is being handed out. Acts chapter 6, you have the widows who are being cared for. And here's the interesting thing. Philip is one of those men who is designated to help oversee the care of widows. And what does he become immediately after that event? It says, by the way, many of the priests came to faith. Interesting. Somehow tied to the way in which the church was caring for its widows. But Philip then becomes an evangelist. And what I want to say to you is, I think that the way in which these wise and godly men ministered to widows proved to be evangelistic. And I don't think that he becomes, Philip becomes a gifted evangelist uh, at a distance from that ministry. I think he becomes a gifted evangelist in the midst of that ministry. And I believe it's the relationship that is built between believers and those who were in need that provides the opportunity for uh, the sharing of the gospel. I see also the relationship that is is bound between believers. And so in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul's describing the gratitude and the love which which develops between those who are givers and those who are recipients. And it says, and they praise God for you. 
when you read in Philippians and you see the Philippians have sent money to Paul, look at the love that you see expressed toward Paul and the love that's expressed from Paul as a result of that gift. I believe giving ought to develop relationships. And I'm saying long-distance giving, where you throw it in a pot and there's no relationship, is not ideal giving to me. Sometimes it may be your best shot. But in my opinion, we ought to be looking for ministry of mercy that develops relationships and relationships that build Christians together and that draw unbelievers to listen and embrace the faith. Fourth, the gospel. I don't believe that we ought to be engaging in ministry of compassion where the gospel is not paramount. Uh, this morning I was talking to Alex Strzok on the phone. That's partly why I was a little bit late this morning as he called. He thought he'd get the answering machine and he got me making last minute changes on my sermon. And, and Alex said, we in Colorado, in our church in Colorado, we are committed to minister in ways that make the gospel prominent and clear. And, and I really believe that's an important thing. There are many places where you can send your money and it may be well used. But there are fewer places, many fewer places, where you will send your money and the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be heralded as the greatest need of all. That's where we ought to be sending, I think, our funds. And the last is, glory to God. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9. These people are glorifying God because of what you've done. Paul really does the same thing in Philippians as well. Ultimately, somebody said it this morning, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Stan did. Everything that is done ought to be done to the glory of God. Charitable giving ought to be to the glory of God. And it, it appears to me that unless we are proclaiming the gospel and in making it clear that it is the love of Christ which is working in our hearts, then I don't see how people can give glory to God if they haven't been told about it. So those, I think, would be some of the filters that I would that I would employ. Okay. The last page, the back side of your notes, I basically have a ways to give through Christian organizations. And I've I, these were just the ones that had come uh, across my desk in the last couple of days. Uh, Dallas Seminary has a disaster relief fund, and you can see the link there. Scott Cunningham, uh, you remember, is involved in ministering to uh, pastors and teachers in, in, around the world. And there is a seminary there in Haiti that's a very, very fine seminary. And, and Scott knows the president of the seminary. And so he has provided a link uh, in case you would be interested in in ministering through that uh, organization. And then uh, Ramesh Richard and Reach has a ministry that focuses on uh, those who are pastors uh, with whom uh, Ramesh and the organization has uh, had a discipling uh, ministry. That link is there too. Since uh, I had these uh, printed up, uh, I talked to Alex, and Alex told us that one of the young women in their church had left to go and minister in an orphanage, uh, and she had just arrived one day before the uh, earthquake. And I don't know about her injuries, but she has been brought home, and and uh, so all is well on that. But they're involved in ministry to two orphanages uh, there. 
that are that are very solidly proclaiming the gospel and he said at this moment in time they have no food or water or resources and obviously the need is desperate so i think we will be looking into that and and talking with uh with alex and others as to how we might possibly be involved in that alex also said that christian missions in many lands uh, which is an organization that sends funds uh, to uh, to those who are, are Christian workers without taking administrative costs off the top, that they are working on ministry through people in the Dominican Republic. Now, Alex has been there, just got back from the Dominican Republic in the last week or so, uh, on numerous occasions. The church in the Dominican Republic is strong. Uh, a, a, a number of strong churches. The church in Haiti is unbelievably weak, if not non-existent. And, and so they're, that what they're doing is trying to work through the churches and, and Christians in the Dominican Republic who will come over to Haiti and who will minister in these areas of need. And that money is being uh, dealt with through uh, CMML or Christian missions in many lands. I should tell you that in the past years, we had a fund that was called a Persecuted Christians Fund and also a Disaster Relief Fund, and we merged that together into what we call a Ministry Reserve Fund so that it encompasses all of that. The elders have not met and have not decided, discussed or decided what to do. But I can assure you that the elders will undoubtedly be discussing that and what we ought to do corporately as a church, and and we can certainly pass that on to you. But all I'm saying is, it seems to me the scripture's clear. We all need to take this seriously, and it is an opportunity for us to manifest the love of Christ and to proclaim the gospel of Christ in one of the great times of need. If you don't mind, I'm going to pray for those orphanages that Alex told me about this morning as well as others in great need as I close. Father, we we don't understand uh, the way in which you work. We don't know what all of your purposes are for this, but we know that you're in control. We know that you love to save sinners. And so we pray that this disaster may perhaps prove to be a wake-up call For many, maybe this is the beginning of a revival that will take place uh, there in Haiti. We pray for the Christians who are there. We ask that they would be faithful to you and faithful to the gospel and faithful to minister sacrificially. We think of those who are nearby in the Dominican Republic or those who have gone as doctors or nurses. We pray that your hand might be upon your people as they seek to serve those in desperate need. We pray for the children. We pray for the helpless. We pray for those who are without hope that you might reach out to them in a gracious way and draw them to yourself. We pray for these two orphanages that Alex has has mentioned. And we think of those 120 children uh, now without water or food or resources. Help us, Father. to, to care about them and, and to, uh, to seek to minister to them. And we pray that you would provide for these who are helpless and hopeless, for you are a God of mercy and compassion. In Jesus' name, amen.